So about this time, two years ago, I was stressed out and in a lot of pain. I had recently taken a train ride that began at 1 a.m. in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and ended 15 hours later in downtown Chicago. I had not paid for a sleeper car. Instead, I had planned to spend the night dozing quietly in a slightly reclined coach seat. It was not a very good plan. 48 hours later, after that trip, I woke up with a sore spot on my shoulder that rapidly developed and radiated into an intense, tingly ache all the way down my left arm, and it lodged there for a few weeks. Now, we figured out pretty quickly that I had a pinched nerve. In the grand scheme of life, it was really no big deal. There was no permanent damage. I recovered completely. And in fact, in the way that healthy people often forget the sick and the suffering, once I recovered, I barely remembered my previous suffering self. When I do push myself to remember that, though, what I recall most vividly is how distressing it was to spend every waking hour distracted by pain, weakness, and disability, mild as they were. I remember that I didn't like having to rely on other people to help me with tasks that I normally did myself, like I remember I had to ask my daughter to help me wash my hair. And I remember feeling deeply embarrassed at how easily I slipped into complaining and self-pity. In other words, the distress of that injury extended well beyond the physical. Physical suffering has the power to heighten our awareness of all our very real, very personal weaknesses and limitations. This is why the impact of sickness, disease, injury, disability is almost never limited to the effect on our bodies. They impact our spiritual state, our mental health, our relationships, our place in society. In the history of our human species, as recorded in scripture, sickness and death, shame and fear and doubt, Sin and exile all entered our shared human experience at the same time. And at that most basic level, our need for physical healing is one and the same with our need to be made whole in our soul and in our lives. And so, regardless of the state of your health or my health this morning, the question here in our text is absolutely critical. Will God heal? This can be such a painful and disorienting question, but there's good news. Our gospel passage this morning has meaningful and concrete answers for us. So let's dive right in. Looking at Matthew chapter 5, chapter 8, verse 5. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, to you and me, it might seem like the centurion is opening with a basic request, but in fact, he is opening with a real dilemma. The centurion is a Roman soldier who's like kind of in middle management in the Roman army, and he's asking Jesus to heal his servant, a man experiencing terrible suffering. And the centurion is already familiar with Jesus' healing ministry. 
And he's seen that in almost every single case where Jesus heals someone, Jesus is speaking a word to the sick person or he's touching the sick person to heal him. But the centurion soldier is a Gentile. He is Roman. He is not Jewish. And his ethnicity necessarily keeps him at a distance from the Jewish people. No matter how mutually respectful his relationship with the Jews of Capernaum might be, and we know from this same story in Luke's gospel that he was highly regarded by the local Jews, there were well-defined limits on how close he could come to them or they to him. He would never be invited to the home of a Jew, and no respectable Jew would visit him or even share a meal with him. So it is significant that when the centurion soldier makes an appeal to Jesus concerning his servant, he is careful to mention both that the servant is paralyzed, meaning the servant can't come to Jesus, and that the servant is lying in his home, meaning that Jesus can't come to him. And if Jesus does not come into the house where the sick man lies, Jesus can't speak that healing word or lay his healing hands on him. Now, to our modern ears, this may seem like it is a small obstacle to overcome. Surely, Jesus the radical, Jesus the revolutionary, will recognize these laws as being legalistic and discriminatory. Surely, he wouldn't refrain from healing a man simply because he's at the home of a Gentile servant, or he's in the home of a Gentile. And indeed, we know the end of this story. We know that Jesus does heal the centurion servant. And so we could, if we wished, move quickly to a lesson on inclusivity. And that would not be a false lesson to emphasize that the will of God to heal knows no limits. The gospel of Matthew in particular is packed with illustrations that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, where we find that the insiders in this earthly kingdom find themselves on the outside of God's kingdom, while the outsiders of this earthly kingdom are bringing brought into the kingdom in spades. In this chapter alone, chapter 8, Jesus heals three marginalized persons, none of whom were able to fully participate in religious life. And that is truly significant. But if we move too quickly into this, we may miss something critical that rears its head wherever suffering in the presence of God takes place. When we feel the need for healing, and dare to ask that critical question, will God heal? Often, the question behind that question is, am I worthy? Am I loved by God? Does my suffering matter to him? Does he care for me? spoke earlier of how suffering is often accompanied by shame and doubt. We are shamed by our weakness, and we doubt God's will to heal. If God is able to heal, but I remain unhealed, we reason something's gone haywire. Either God can't heal anyone, or he won't heal me. I have to give up my idea that God can heal, or I must give up the idea that he finds me worthy of being healed. And both these ideas are intolerable. As long as we see miraculous physical healing as a sign of personal worth rather than a sign of God's coming kingdom, we will remain wounded 
sick in our minds, sick in our understanding of who Jesus is and who our loving Father is. Again, as long as we see miraculous physical healing as a sort of validation of the one in need of healing, rather than a sign of God's coming kingdom, we are tragically misunderstanding the work of the healer. We're going to let the text unpack this. So the soldier just made an appeal to Jesus. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And in most English translations, including the one we have before us, we read that Jesus replies in verse 7, I will come and heal him. However, there's good reason to believe that a better translation would be, shall I come and heal him? Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that had been promised to God's chosen people, the Jews. And thus, during his time on earth, Jesus ministered almost exclusively to the Jews. His teaching, his healing, his signs and wonders, all of his discipleship energy were primarily focused on Jewish people. When the Gentile soldier asked Jesus to heal his servant, Jesus does not rush to respond, of course, oh yeah. Instead, he responds to the soldier much the same way he does to the Canaanite woman he will meet in chapter 15. If you remember that story, she, a Gentile, also makes an appeal to Jesus on behalf of another. And Jesus seems to rebuff her with off-putting remarks like, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And this same kind of odd flavor in Jesus' response is present here. Am I to come to your house to heal a Gentile? Jesus seems to be deliberately teasing out that painful question. Am I worthy? And the centurion soldier, like that Canaanite woman, gets it. He really does. He gets the significance of this question in a way that the Lord's own favored people do not. In the same story in Luke's gospel, the Jews themselves try to persuade Jesus to heal the centurion soldier's servant. Literally by arguing, they say, he is worthy for you to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. The Jews try to make a merit-based argument for healing. He's a good guy, they argue. He deserves this. And isn't that the way we often approach God for healing? Either we approach with a sense of presumption, hey, I've given up a lot to faithfully serve Jesus all these years. Why is God not coming through for me when I need it? Or we sometimes approach with a sense of hopelessness or despair or fail to approach, thinking, man, look at all the ways I failed God in my life. Of course, I, I can't ask him for healing. The temptation to view divine healing as a sort of faith and value transaction is almost irresistible, no matter what century you live in. But the centurion soldier himself has a much clearer grasp on things. In verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Lord, 
I am not worthy. Isn't that simple? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that humility beautiful? This man has a firm grasp on something I think we easily lose hold of. Namely, if the healing that we all need so desperately depends on our merit, healing could never come. None of us are inherently worthy of God's kind attention. Jew, Gentile, soldier, civilian, priest, pagan, gray, gay, state, straight, tinker, tailor, thief. No one has a legitimate claim on God's mercy. The sinful state that we were born into and the sins that we commit day in and day out are constantly contributing to our illness, constantly working against our health. In fact, our moral sickness and our mortality, our diseased bodies, are cut from the same cloth, spiritually speaking. Back at the beginning of human history, when we chose to cut ourselves off from God, when we broke that vital, life-giving connection to the Father, every part of us began to wither, including our bodies, which are so precious to God. We have no merit of our own to stand on. We are utterly dependent on the will of God to heal body and soul. And out of the overflow of his love and his mercy, God promised a savior to Israel, not because of Israel's greatness, but because of their smallness. Way back in Deuteronomy, God says that to Israel outright. Right, right. I set my affection on you, Israel, because you were the smallest, the puniest nation. And God made no promises to any other nation, not even the mighty Roman Empire. So the centurion's appeal for healing is not based on his personal worth. He explicitly states, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But, and this is important too, neither does he come to Jesus anxious or self-conscious about his lack of worth. Because God's choice to heal is not connected to the centurion's worth, but to the mission of Jesus to heal the world. The centurion can confess his unworthiness bluntly, matter-of-factly, and continue to move toward Jesus. So the centurion pivots the conversation this way. This is in verse 8. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this is a little unexpected, maybe. This Roman Gentile man of war has been observing Jesus, a low-born Jewish carpenter-turned-rabbi with a supernatural touch, and he has recognized something that they have very much in common. Namely, they are men with authority who are themselves under authority. The centurion is a man under authority. He is professionally bound to carry out the will of those above him. And as a soldier and a leader, he's also a man who commands those beneath him, those under him. And this authority structure is a defining feature of his whole life. If his superior officer gives a command, he does it. If he issues a command to those under him, 
they must do it. And it is on this basis of authority that he makes his appeal. He doesn't argue that he's worthy, though Jesus values him deeply. He does not appeal to the compassion of Jesus, though Jesus is compassionate. He doesn't appeal to the egalitarianism of Jesus, though Jesus is no respecter of persons. No, the centurion makes his appeal to a man who is under authority and in authority. He recognizes that though Jesus is a man, he is a man who has been vested with divine authority from his Father in heaven to accomplish a particular healing mission. He is bold to ask for healing because he sees Jesus doing what the Father tells him to do. And he sees that it is the Father's will to heal. We're going to jump ahead really briefly to verses 16 and 17. That evening, that is the evening after Jesus heals the centurion's servant, the disciples brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And Jesus cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Again, this translation could read a little bit differently. We can try, that evening Jesus healed all who were sick because Isaiah prophesied. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 700 years before Jesus was born, the father told the prophet Isaiah that he would send a man to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and that this man would bring us peace and heal us with his own wounds. The centurion soldier, outsider though he was, saw that Jesus was not just a man with unique healing powers. He was a man sent from God to heal and to heal to the uttermost. This is an important distinction. A healer A free agent healer with the power to heal this or that illness who can straighten your spine or rid your body of cancer or supply you with antibodies to fend off the infection, that's all good stuff. But frankly, none of those healings go far enough. Divine healing may grant us a blessed reprieve from pain. It may postpone the day of our death by months or by years. But our need for healing is much greater than we can know. And God's will to heal is greater than we know. The will of God is to heal not just physical ills, but the spiritual ones. The will of God is to heal not just the temporary ills, but the eternal ones. The will of God is to heal not just the biological sons of Abraham, but Jew and Gentile alike, which is another way of saying he comes to heal not just the worthy, but the unworthy. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. We are not worthy to have Jesus come under our roof. Nonetheless, God longs to draw near to us in our suffering, and not just for a brief visit and a temporal healing, He longs to move in and dwell with us, to dine with us, to cleanse us, 
to make us completely whole and holy in his presence forever. Listen to how Jesus responds to this insight from the centurion soldier. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot packed in here. Jesus is honoring that subversive nature of the kingdom of God, where those who are worthy in their own eyes, who consider themselves insiders, are cast out, and the outsiders, those who know themselves to be at the margins, those in the east, in the west, who put their faith in Jesus, are brought all the way into the kingdom to dine with the dignitaries, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It turns out that the worth that we ascribe to ourselves is meaningless in regard to healing. Only those who turn to Jesus in faith can enter the kingdom where we recline at table with him. And Jesus is pointing to the ultimate end of healing where all those who place their faith in Jesus will recline at table with all the saints in the kingdoms of God. Physical healing is one subset of the ultimate blessing that God wills for us. Healing is ultimately reconciliation with God. And from that flows the healing of communities, the healing of social relationships, the healing of the mind, the healing of the will, the healing of the imagination, the healing of the body. It is all of one piece. Healing is not a sign of whether or not we are loved and accepted by God. Healing is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and a reminder that behind the healing ministry of Jesus stands the original and only, the blessed source of wholeness and well-being, God himself. Verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Praise the Lord. Disease, illness, and injury were not part of God's will for mankind. It is Satan's will to steal, destroy, and kill, not God's. But God has made it his business to redeem the suffering that sin and Satan bring. And so with every experience of suffering that you and I experience, comes an invitation to turn toward the healer, the one whose desire it is to heal and restore to the uttermost. As disorienting and debilitating as suffering can be, there are three things we can know, three things that we can do even in the midst of suffering. First, we know whom to go. We go to the God whose will it is to heal completely, and we go to him through Jesus, the one who is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, upon whom is the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We know we can turn to the healer. Secondly, we know how 
to go to God humbly and confidently in faith like the centurion. We go humbly knowing that we cannot earn, we cannot deserve healing, but we also go confidently understanding that God sent his son to heal and that physical temporal healing is just one precious sign of his coming kingdom. And we go to God in faith, small and imperfect faith, but trusting him nonetheless, because even the tiniest amount of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, that is also a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. Faith and healing go together, not because faith purchases healing for us. It's a very twisted theology that says, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. That is not true. Many who were healed by Jesus in his time on earth never followed him, never put their faith in him as Lord. And many men and women of great faith, like St. Paul, do not receive relief from temporal suffering. But it is true that faith and healing are both signs of the coming kingdom. And that is why throughout the Gospels, the healing of bodies and the proclamation of the Gospel go together. Healing, faith, and gospel proclamation are all deeply and integrally connected to one another. And this informs the final thing we can know here from Scripture about healing. We can know what to do as we turn to God for healing. And that is simply to open yourself to receive all you can now of the kingdom of God. Be bold to ask for physical healing. Be bold also to ask for everything and anything else that God wills for you to receive in your suffering in the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual nourishment, rest, fellowship with the saints, fellowship with Jesus as he extends to you an invitation to dine at table with him. If you find yourself in need of healing, any kind of healing this morning, I encourage you to pray with a prayer minister or other mature believer today and ask to receive any and every good thing that the Father wills for you. Brothers and sisters, none of us can receive complete healing until the kingdom comes in its fullness at the end of time when we see Jesus face to face. At that moment, we will be made perfect body, and soul, and we will feast at table with the Lord and with the saints of God forever. But even now, that kingdom of God is breaking through. Through the life and death of his dear son, Jesus, God has already opened up for us the path of life, and he invites us to walk that with him. So take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. For you who revere his name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.